0: Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage podcast, we speak with leaders in the DoD industry and subject matter experts to explore the intersection between strategy, operational concepts, technology and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. Now to our regular listeners, thank you so much for coming back. And if it's your first time here, we really appreciate you joining us. Today, we're going to explore a topic that is getting a lot of attention here in DC the relationship between the U.S. Space Force and the Air National Guard. The Guard has been executing space functions since the early 1990s, and I'm talking about day to day deployable space warfighting operations across numerous mission areas. They handle everything from space missile warning, satellite communications, space battle management, space surveillance, and missile tracking, to space electronic warfare. In fact, The Air National Guard provides nearly 20% of the manpower and over 60% of the Space Force's warfighting capacity. So when the Biden administration and the Office of Management and Budget decided to promote a single component Space Force with no reserve or guard components, it left the question, what happens to the Air National Guard units handling space? One thing is for sure, we need to ensure the proper staffing of these billets because the demand of space is not going down. We also need to pay attention to the cost factors. Part-time folks don't cost as much as the full-time individuals. And we also need to make sure command authorities align. Right now, space folks in the guard are in a weird command relationship. It would be like putting the air guard in the Navy. Space Guard folks need to report clearly and cleanly to the Space Force and Space Command. So with that, we're gonna dig into this question and the relationships between the Guard, the Space Force, and before that, Air Force Space. And to help us understand this better, we have three space operators and commanders with us today. First, I'd like to introduce Colonel Michael Bruno, Chief of the Joint Staff, Colorado National Guard. Mike, welcome to the Aerospace Advantage.
1: Thanks, Flick, I appreciate the invitation.
0: Next, we have Lieutenant Colonel Scott McGuire, commander of the 114th Space Control Squadron of the Florida Air National Guard. Scott, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Lake's It's good to be here. I'm just uh, proud to represent uh, the 114th Thundercats and also the state of Florida, so thank you.
0: And finally, we have MySpace's own senior fellow Christopher Stone. Chris, it's great to have you back on the show, and as most of you know, Chris also serves in the Air Guard as a space operator. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Well, Chris, let's kick off the conversation with you. Now, build the picture for us. What do space operators
3: in the Guard do today? Well, as you mentioned in your intro, um, there's pretty much not a whole lot that the Guard doesn't do in space operations. The uh, Air National Guard has been engaged in space operations since the early 1990s, and it has grown into um, a representative of seven different states in one territory. In several mission areas and so that's everything from missile warning, satellite communications, space battle management, space surveillance and missile tracking to space electronic warfare. And in fact the Air National Guard currently provides about 20% of the manpower and over 60% of the Space Force's warfighting capacity. So this is not small things here, this is a good chunk of the capability that the Space Force currently has. And this started, as I mentioned, in the early 90s after the Cold War when the drawdown was going on. The Air Force was having a lot of limited billets in Air Force Base Command. They were looking for ways to maintain mission areas as well as potentially expand others. And because they didn't have the manpower authorizations and the funding to do so, they found that the National Guard was willing to take on some of these missions in addition to their more traditional flying missions. And so the first unit in Colorado became what is still the current only mobile missile warning asset there is in the U.S. military. And that has expanded, as I mentioned, into several other mission areas over time because of that and a lot of other reasons. So the cost-effective measure was was one key area. The second thing was the experience base that you get from the National Guard members. A lot of these folks have 10-plus years of experience in their weapon system Uh, or their operational area. And as such, this kind of experience is really hard to come by in the active space force. And so when you have that kind of experience and, oh, by the way, folks that work in the industry and in other parts of the the space world, that gives you a lot of advantages and just know-how and knowledge that you can't get with just the active force uh, as, as effective and awesome as those folks are. And so as a result of that, with the limited budget constraints of today, um, the, the, the Air Force Space Command beforehand and the Space Force today has been a very big supporter of having the the Air National Guard space units continue to take on more and to do more just because of their flexibility and their ability to do different things. And so with that, that's uh, that's where we were and what they do currently. Chris, thanks so much
0: for the background. And let me ask you this. If I were executing a space mission in the Air Guard today, how would my unit report to the Space Force, given that the alignment doesn't look very direct? I mean, the head of the Air Guard falls under the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, not the Chief of Space Operations.
3: Yeah, that's correct. I know our, our two commanders uh, here will probably give more detail at the tactical level. But at the highest level, as you mentioned, the Air National Guard is, a, is connected to the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. It reports... To there indirectly, directly it reports to the chief of the National Guard Bureau per DOD policy. And as a result, all the air guard units, flying units, cyber units, whatever they are, they have the organizing, training, and equipping uh, flows, funding, and whatnot from the federal side to the states to keep people mission ready and, and follow all those procedural training and everything else through the Air Force. Now, because of the Space Force being a, a service unto itself, as of December 2019 all of these uh, space units in the Air National Guard are for all intents and purposes orphaned from the organized training and equip chain uh, in order to keep the mission going these units across the states and Guam being the territory are having to go through a series of memorandums of agreement and other sorts of hoops to jump through just to keep things ready to go and while it's been able to continue their readiness there have been several issues that have popped up from the standpoint of training, being able to ship equipment overseas, things of that sort, as well as getting people to have the orders cut in order to stay on shift for their 24-7 missions that the Guard supports. So I know we'll get into that more. But for now, because of that, the current Director of Space Operations for the National Guard Bureau does not have a direct OTE line. And so these units are having to go roundabout ways through the Air Force to get to Space Operations Command and other things. And so it's totally inefficient and not very effective, especially as when you bring on new members in the Guard. Uh, Now the Space Force is starting to have their own basic training. They're starting to have their own training classes. And the uh, specialty codes, 13S and 1Charlie6, as they're called, for the officer and enlisted, are no longer Air Force uh, things They're now Space Force things. So that just creates all sorts of problems that shouldn't be because of what happened in the past. Chris, thanks so much for that. And
0: Mike, I want to build off what Chris was saying. Has continuing to operate in the Air National Guard created any issues for you as a commander in executing your space mission, or is it still business as usual? Uh, And I'm not saying that the Air Guard is bad by any means. Um, What I think we're trying to talk about here is the fundamental force architecture uh, that needs to be cleaned up given the stand-up of the Space Force.
1: Hey, Slick, that's a great question, and it's definitely not business as usual. So previously, um, my previous job, I was fortunate enough to be the commander of the 233rd Space Group here in Colorado. The 233rd has two operational squadrons, uh, one, which Chris talked about earlier, the men and women of the 137th Space Warning Squadron. They operate the nation's only survivable and endurable base and missile warning and nuclear detonation detection capability. Uh, this is a one-of-a-kind mission, and it's only in the Air National Guard. We also operate the 138 Space Electromagnetic Warfare Squadron. They just changed their name, so I'm still getting used to that. Those members train and operate an offensive space control system in support of combat commanders. These are space missions in an Air Force component. And under this current construct, there is truly an issue with the unity of command and the different operational philosophies between the two services and how they present their forces. Currently, the Air Force's mission is to fly, fight, and win. And their doctrine is driving towards developing multi-capable airmen who are proficient at accomplishing tasks outside their core specialties. Uh, That way they can provide combat and service support to an agile combat employment. U.S. Space Force's mission is to conduct global space operations. Their doctrine is based on a June 2020 Space Capstone publication which creates a holistic and integrated view of how the space domain and space operations are done. And it directs mastery of space power disciplines of orbital warfare, space electromagnetic warfare, space battle management, and things along those lines. The National Guard space units are now caught between these two services, or, as lack of a better way of saying it, two different bosses, each with their own model of how to organize, train, and equip their members. So our commanders are left with the decision on who do they follow. Do they follow the service that they report their readiness to, or the service whose capabilities they present to our Joint Force commanders? Bottom line is the status quo is creating a disconnect between training, readiness, and force presentation at this time.
3: And also, I'll just add one other thing is that when you're dealing with deployed forces, such as the the electronic warfare uh, units, the Air Force and the Space Force have two different deployment models um, that they're working on right now, and so I'm sure that we'll probably hear about that from our, our Florida guest later on. Okay, Mike, can you clarify for us what you
0: mean by disconnected? Um, is this something that is a big deal, or just something that can be worked around?
1: It is a big deal, uh, since. December 2019, as Chris talked about earlier, when U.S. Space Force was established, those Air National Guard units tasked with space missions have found ways to work around the disconnects, uh, but unfortunately, that gap continues to widen. Uh, just one example is recently, uh, U.S. Space Force uh, is finishing, they're in their final stages now, uh, developing a Space Force input tool into the Department of Defense's Defense Readiness Reporting System. This is the system that tracks the readiness of the units and the individuals. Because Space Force is developing their own, there's going to be a disconnect between the way Air Force and Space Force units present their forces and forces are generated. Just an offhand example, uh, the Air National Guard has groups and wings. Space Force has deltas. So you're presenting units in a different way. For folks individually, for them to be qualified to deploy, they must be fully trained in their occupational specialty. And Chris talked about this earlier. The 13 Sierra AFSC is going away. And all that training is now being provided by Space Force through Delta One. And of course, they are focused on Space Force members. So now we're competing for resources. And when we're competing for resources, our members are going to lose out on that.
0: All right. Got it. Um, So, Scott, as someone who commands a deployable space electronic warfare squadron, uh, do the same issues that Mike mentioned apply to your mission? Or is it something that uh, is only impacting a few guard units?
2: So what Colonel Brillo talked about, it obviously affects us as well. Right. So that disconnected enterprise between Air National Guard, we fall under a fighter wing. And while we get great support, that's from they're under ACC. You have the delta 3 also involved and then of course ngb so i feel like we're kind of left out sometimes uh, this recently happened that we got the u.S uh, space force came down and did an inspection and you know obviously they're looking for things that we're just that disconnect culture right now uh, they've actually been inspected twice they came down recently and then uh, back in 2020 when they first stood up, one of the questions that came up was training specifically. And we actually produced some training products they took with them, but there's that disconnect. We're not sharing information, which I think Colonel Bruno touched on. To give a couple other examples, so we just recently had a um, an enlisted member attend AIC, which is the, air, the instructor course for uh, enlisted at weapons school. So here is a the first ever Air National Guard uh, enlisted member attend weapons school, but it's in a space course and really not recognized as an airman, right? He's kind of put into that guardian mindset. So does he ever have the the buy-in that everyone else has? And I think that's a tough one. You know, it was tough for him to get in and then obviously as far as what the future looks like for him. So other disconnects, I think we're already talked about obviously from a unit commander, I'm looking at my people. How do I keep them engaged? You know, one of the big part is what's the uncertainty, right? When you talk about readiness, I like to promote here. I'm always recruiting. You're always looking at folks. Uh, but with no Space Guard, what does that look like? What's the future look like for folks? And part of the model they talked about was, which I've I've seen stuff that, if there's no Space Guard, then I want the Air National Guard to do the mission for the next three to five years. I'm not sure how we do that. You touched on some other topics. Uh, look at the experience. You know, we looked and pulled our folks. So you got anywhere from seven to ten years experience. We've been around since 2014. Us in California were the first two us. Uh, electromagnetic warfare units to kind of stand up and uh, you're taking away all that experience. And I don't know when you talk about uh, everything else, how you kind of replace that quickly. Uh, We got a good mix. You have some uh, folks like myself who have been in the actually in the guard all my career. And then you have some active duty folks. Uh, We had actually a speech writer for general Raymond come over to us recently with obviously some, some active duty space control experience. So you have a good mix. And I think that that kind of stuff really uh, helps when you're talking about readiness and that's what I worry about. If, if it doesn't happen, what? I've not seen anything in this part-time force as to what that truly entails. Is it the same where we talk about uh, folks that are able to do both? You know, we have a good mix of uh, our part-time folks working in the industry. And I think it was touched on, you know, we did a, a poll, so we have 40% of our members working in the aerospace industry, whether that's SpaceX, Northrop Grumman, l Harris, name a few. You got that experience where you can leverage both. They can have that career in the military, but also leverage their civilian experience. And as far as I know, innovation happens, doesn't necessarily happen in the military. Maybe it does at some point, but I think leveraging that, I think is huge. So
3: Yeah, and I'll also mention um, that, as, as you mentioned, that experience of seven to 10 years, the current uh, plan from, from the Biden administration has been... And also especially through their office of management and budget is to replace or to remove the space units from the air national guard completely over the next few years uh, as it was mentioned in a recent senate armed services committee hearing um, i think about a month ago and if you take all these people out of the space mission that will incur a huge cost to the space force not only from equipment maintenance organized training equipment, but you're going to have to figure out a way to get people that they don't have. They're already restrained by billet numbers in the Space Force. Uh, This was, as as I mentioned earlier, this was a way to get more people, you know, with experience capable of being leveraged in a crisis or in, in current operations. And that's going to take seven to 10 years to get that experience base up that you're not going to have. And so all these other people that are now trained in space, as he mentioned of that one enlisted troop that went to AIC, where are they gonna go? And that's a concern that a lot of people are having with recruiting and retention, is they're gonna have to be retrained in the Air Guard. And that means the Air Force is gonna have to figure out what to do with these people. And that's gonna be a bill for them as well. So this is not just a, these units have issues that they have to address if this Space National Guard thing doesn't happen, it's gonna be an issue that the Air Force is gonna have to deal with as well.
2: I could touch on one more thing, you know, you mentioned I was a deployable unit. This will be our fourth deployment coming up. You know, I've been on one myself and it's never been easy getting out the door when it comes to being kind of disconnected. And I think that's important to remember. So not being part of a Space Force and how that works, it's been kind of a disconnect getting out the door.
0: Yeah, it's massively interesting. Um, Now, Chris, I want to switch back to you uh, to get to the root of this disconnection issue. Uh, As someone who has been following this debate about the Space National Guard, since you were in the Pentagon working space policy, why do you think uh, things are so disconnected? I mean, it clearly has negative impacts on the mission needs for our combatant commanders. So uh, what are the, uh, the dynamics that are behind this push to remove the National Guard from the
3: space mission? Well that's a good question and as you mentioned that these units are not just here to support the space force they support such as the Florida mission the space control mission who's deploying a lot they support combatant commanders worldwide so it's not just that they're they're all connected into US space command alone they're they're supporting everything from operations in the Middle East to other places and so all those combatant commanders are going to have issues finding out where they're going to get replacements for that too but but to your question um, why is it so disconnected? I guess the only way I can probably describe that is the Pentagon and the DC world, as many of you our listeners know, is is a lot about personality and a lot about experiences that people have with different organizations over time. And so, in the case of 2019 to now, there have been at least three studies done within the Department of Defense and the Department of the Air Force on, reserve components in the, in the National Guard in, in, in particular. And there are just a lot of people that just have different views and different agendas on what they think is required and not required. So there are always these questions that pop up like, why do states need space missions? Why does a governor need to have an electronic warfare space unit or an endurable, survivable strategic missile warning unit, to just name a few? And those questions really are the wrong questions to ask because, you know, you could ask the same thing about the Air National Guard. And so, the Air National Guard has been proven to be a great model. The total force model has been proven since 9-11 to be a very, very important and useful model to be able to meet all of our requirements in a budget-constrained environment. And so, because you have different people that, for whatever reason, um, have some antibodies toward the National Guard... They want to see that removed. The other part is, is that the National Guard operates under two codes of, of the United States Code. You have Title X, which is the Federal Department of Defense Warfighting Code that governs all those activities, and you have Title 32, which is considered by many to be a training code within, within U.S. Code, And but it also gives flexibility to federal people and state people to be able to use these National Guardsmen for various national security or homeland defense-related missions. And so while myself and people in the Guard usually argue that this is a plus, um, when a commander on Title X uh, does not have these units attached to them for operational reasons, you know, in, in a deployed or whatever, they fall under the, the control of the governors not the president and not the secretary and not whatever the deployed delta is that they're attached to. And so a lot of folks at the combatant command levels and in other parts of the services don't like the fact that they don't have day-to-day control over these units. And so there was a push for the single component idea that started about 2020, which is basically there is no reserve, there is no guard, there's just a part-time and full-time Space Force, which has never been done in the United States. It's loosely based on an Australian Defense Force model, which, by the way, a lot of Australians don't think that it's really a great model in many cases when we did uh, some studies on that back when I was doing space policy stuff. And so as a result of that, we d- it's just a matter of, of trying to convince people that may not have been paying attention to what the Guard has been doing since the early 90s and how important they are and what the value added is, And so now we've just had to continue to make that argument, Um, and the National Guard has had to continue to make that argument. And so that's why you see so much disconnectedness. And a lot of people, it's very politically sensitive with 54 states and territories, and there's concerns that people want, that every state wants to have a space mission. And from what the National Guard Bureau has stated over and over again, and the Space Force that supported it has stated, is that that's not the plan. But even if there was to be growth in the future, that's up to the Secretary of the Air Force that runs all the basing and all the, all the growth stuff. So it's, it's not something the Guard can just do. A state can't just say, we're going to have a space unit. It's a federally created thing that the states then join in and support. So there's a lot of layers to this, but basically, you know, podcasts like these and other events in the public over the last few years, I think have been necessary to kind of re-educate folks on what the Guard does in space, why it's important to not just the states, but also to the nation as a whole, because of space being a a true warfighting domain.
1: The only thing I really have to add about this is there's a lot of opposition out there to the establishment of a Space National Guard, and a lot of that is based on a inaccurate Congressional Budget Office report that came out in about June of 2020, where it estimated that it would cost between 100 and 900 million dollars to establish a Space National Guard. They talked about going across uh, the 54 states and territories, they talked about building new headquarters. They're, they talked about standing up a new command element uh, back at Guard and, and none of that is actually required. The actual cost, and this has come out from uh, the Air National Guard previously, or the National Guard, is somewhere in the ballpark of $250,000. And there's no budget increase required. That will be money that will come out of the National Guard itself. And that money will be used to change name tapes and change heraldry. So guide on uh, signs outside of buildings, things along those lines. The, the members of the 233rd, the ones that are doing this space and missile warning mission, they will come in one day, if a Space National Guard is established, into the same building, using the same equipment, wearing the same uniform with new name tape colors on it. That is the cost. There is no added cost to bring in new people, bring in new equipment, build new buildings. So that's my uh, input on that one. Thank you.
3: And I'll also add that in addition to those new name tags, it's not just new name tags. It's clear, organized training and equip lines between the Space Force and those guard units and the National Guard Bureau. So while it is aesthetically the same thing, that's a that's a huge change when you have the ability to know where your funding is coming from you have access to training and you're not competing for resources as as the folks mentioned earlier okay so
0: mike and scott uh i know we briefly went over the mission sets but can you share with our listeners? how your respective space missions contribute to our national defense. Uh, listening to some of the commentary out there, it sounds like the Space Force is sort of uh, a service provider for the other branches of the military. But given the threats by China and Russia in space, uh, is that really the case? So
2: I think it's, it's it's important for the listener to understand that 60% of the space electromagnetic warfare units are currently in the Air National Guard. And of course, the U.S. Space Force has said they can't do the mission without us. I've heard it numerous times. I've been at uh, conferences. We can't do it without the Guard, yet the mantra is that we don't want the Guard. So it's kind of hard from my, my perspective. Uh, we were established, obviously, back in 2014 to actually build capacity for the U.S. Space Force, uh, especially the EW Electromagnetic Warfare. So obviously, we're, we're deployed across the globe to meet the combatant command requirements uh I, I kind of mentioned just from us we've had we've had deployments obviously going back since 2018 the guard actually stood up California and Colorado to take 100% of the mission at the time from the active duty so they could train and equip on a new system you know space war t- fighting domain is critical to our way of life uh and you know I think it's important to remember that that's what we're here to do and I think uh, f- from our mission set I think uh the guard provides that, and I think that's what's missing. Uh, and just to go back to the last question, I think what's not mentioned in cost is experience. We, we kind of touched on it earlier, but when you think of seven to ten years to get that experience back, are we willing to push that off on what's happening in the world today when we're talking about China and Russia? I don't know. As an American, I want to push you know that experience away. So that's just my perspective.
3: Yeah, and I'll also mention that that mission that they operate down in Florida is um, what's called the countercommunication system, and it's essentially a, a jamming system. And when you look at what the Chinese and Russians are doing, building their multi-layered attack architectures, they call it, to include options across what's known as the counter-space continuum, where you have reversible impacts such as jamming and directed energy and things of that sort, like lasers and high-powered microwaves and all that kind of stuff all the way up to kinetic interceptors that we've seen tested with Russia recently testing one last uh, November December timeframe, where they actually kinetically blow stuff up in space. And so as a result of that, it's also to be told that the Space Force put these, all these extra units in there because they need more capacity. And I would argue that we still need more capacity in that mission area as well as other areas like the orbital warfare area, which is just starting out now, with Delta-9. And there's lots of ways that the Guard could support that in the future, given the budget constraints and the limitation on how many people are allowed in the Space Force, the active part, levied by Congress.
1: So if I can add, uh, answer actually your question there, that are they just a service provider? No. Um, Space has become a warfighting domain, just like land, sea, and air. And we do need folks that are ready to Uh, defend and support that domain. And that's what Space Force is for. So it is more than just a service provider. And I think tagging on with what both Chris and Scott said uh, with the threat from China and Russia, we've seen how important it is to have a position in space where we can provide support, security, and strategic effects from space Uh, because that's what Russia and China are doing. Uh, As for the missions, recently, uh, when uh, Russia decided to invade Ukraine, uh, the men and women of the 233rd Space Group, specifically the 137th Space Warning Squadron, were activated, again, as the only mobile and endurable space and missile warning mission, just in case there were missile launches that were outside the effects of Ukraine, our folks would be able to uh, detect those. So it is a vital mission to our nation's defense. And it was just another example of how important it is that we have this mission.
0: All right. Thanks for that. Um, Okay. So
3: we know the larger problem, but what can we do about it? Well, I'll start with that. Um, The only way that this can be fixed, really, the easiest route, and three studies in the department have, have pretty much stated this. And I'll mention also that in that, SASC, uh, that's, that Senate Armed Services Committee hearing from a month or two ago that mentioned the Office of Management and Budget uh, directing the push to push out all the guard units and to not establish a space guard per the, per the studies, is that none of these studies ever made it to Congress. And so a lot of these congressmen and senators that were, have been mandating these in National Defense Authorization Acts for the last several years have never received these reports. And as a result of that, um, you know that the National Guard Bureau and others have been trying to educate the members of Congress from each of the states that hold space missions in the Guard, but also uh, all the others that have equity in national defense, which is just about everybody, on what the Guard does and has done and could do continually in the, into the future. And um, as a result of that, um, the administration, when they put out their statement of administration policy, that's basically just their, their view of Congressional bills. Uh, last NDAA, they decided to extend that to the fiscal year 23, which is now being marked up right now in Congress, to basically say that we don't want one, we don't need one, and we want to get rid of these missions in the next few years. Even if they decided they wanted to keep the status quo, it's still not good for our, na- our nation's defense or for these, these personnel in order to maintain their readiness to do what we need to do in a situation where Putin has been rattling his nuclear saber, has been engaging in counter space operations overseas, and the Chinese obviously are, are building up and, and testing their own capabilities. It's not really a good time to do anything super drastic like that. And frankly, what needs to happen is the Congress needs to Create the, the establish the Space National Guard, which, as, as Colonel Bruno mentioned, is really just acknowledging an institution that already exists. It just needs to be recognized as such. The units are already there, the people are already there, the weapon systems are already there. They just need to be properly aligned with the leadership chain in the Space Force, and they need to be properly aligned in the funding, organized, training, and equipping of functions.
1: Well, first of all, that was well said. Uh, so what we do need right now is we need our representatives to uh, both on the house and the senate side uh, to introduce language establishing the space national guard Um, currently the office of management and budget has a gag order out where the services can't speak about the uh, space national guard Uh, they're not allowed to bring it up Uh, they're not allowed to support it Uh, so what we need is our uh, congressional delegates to go out there and say this is the right thing for America. It's the right thing to save the American taxpayers money. Uh, It's the right thing to make sure that we don't have a degradation in the readiness of our space missions uh, over the next seven to ten years. Uh, If you look at the outlook of where uh, China and Russia plan to be in the next seven to ten years, uh, it's vitally important for our nation's security that we uh, maintain our readiness when it comes to space operations. So that's what we're looking for right now is our congressional delegates to uh, submit the language. It's that easy.
0: So, Chris, you mentioned what the
3: administration says they're considering. Uh, what are the pros and cons of that vision? Well, I, I think we've discussed that some of, somewhat, but let me just give it a little more context behind that. So, as I mentioned, the statement of administration policy is there their statement out in public that they don't want a Space National Guard, they don't think it's necessary, and and this is widely held throughout most of the administration in the White House at least. Um, and as, as as the colonel mentioned, there is a gag order that the Chief of the Guard Bureau and other senior federal Title X military leaders are not able to advocate for it or speak to it or any of that stuff. So that's why we're hearing mostly from the state leaderships, the adjutants generals, and the local unit people. And in their mind the positive is, as I mentioned earlier, Title ten control of space and no access for Title Thirty Two because they don't see the value added in Title Thirty Two. Let me give you a quick insight into how Title Thirty Two could be used because I didn't bring that up earlier and I think that might be useful context for folks listening. Title Thirty Two allows us to the, the guard and in the you know the Space Force with the Guard to be able to do operations short of commanding satellites or conducting maneuvers or shooting electronic, you know, trons, if you will, with jamming. So it has been proposed back when U.S. Space Command was created, which is the combatant command piece of it. Space Force is the organized, training and equip side, obviously. That rather than spending all that money from Title X pots of money, that states such as california which has a satellite command and control mission or alaska which has a missile warning and space surveillance 24 7 mission set that rather than having to put folks on title 10 orders for doing 99 percent of their function of, of monitoring status of the systems in space or tracking things moving around in space that they could do a similar thing like the fighter planes do with the Sovereignty Alert or Homeland Defense mission, which is where they're on alert, ready to do the mission with the airplanes, and then they're, they're called up, they're scrambled, and they launch, and then once the wheels are up, they automatically convert to a Title X status per prearranged structure, order structure. And that has been promoted within the, the Department of Defense around the same timeframe as these studies have been as a way to have greater cost reduction And allow more mission to be done by the guard at lower rates. So if there is a need for a a protect and defend action, then those crews on console can then transition up to Title 10 with what's called auto conversion. That hasn't been agreed upon, but that's one way you could leverage that. Additionally, um, these space operators have knowledge that can be leveraged by state leadership to do homeland missions such as domestic response for emergencies like earthquakes, tornadoes, fires, terrorist attack, things of that sort, that hasn't really been explored too much by states, although some states are getting into the use of overhead satellite imagery for further disaster response. And a lot of that is done with guard units in other states as well, and those experience spaces can be really useful, and I've seen that on my guard side of life back several years ago. So their pluses really are not that great because you're losing – a lot of experience and capability and options and flexibility that you get with title 32 and title 10, as well as those folks that work, you know, special missions with the NRO that, that can govern under title 50. But for whatever reason, they think it's better to just have that control uh, rather than having a, in their minds, a bifurcated chain of command, if you will, under the governor's until they're activated. The other thing I will mention that's a pro, that for whatever reason they don't see is the fact that with a very small amount of the American population serving in uniform, that having a local community-based unit like the Guard provides all over the country in, in air and land, and now with these seven states plus one territory with space, the Space Force, if they really want to get their understanding of what they do out there, what better way than to leverage their neighbors in these states to explain what the Space Force does. Because not every state has a Space Force base. Those are very far and few between. But there are other states that the Guard has space missions in that these folks could be sort of emissaries for that. And then lastly, I'll mention another pro that they leave out uh, that we've seen prove fruitful in places like Brazil and even in Ukraine is the state partnership program which is a guard led program with various foreign countries and foreign militaries that allows us to give them training and experience in everything from air, land, and even space. Um, the unit that I've been affiliated with has been working with Brazil as sort of a means of of helping to counter a lot of what the Chinese and Russians have been trying to gain within burgeoning space power nations like Brazil. And so I think those are value added areas that for whatever reason, the White House folks don't see the importance of, despite all the good things we're seeing helping the Ukrainians because of previous engagements in that area. I was just going to add when
2: you reference the state partnership program, obviously Space Command is currently obviously vetting other countries as space capabilities during this time. And they're, they're, you know, this is a perfect time to leverage the expertise in the Guard. Uh, especially as we look ahead. So I think that's a a perfect example of how you can use the guard for for that relationship and the ability to leverage capabilities.
3: And so I, I understand that people want to give the administration's view. You know, there are some pros in some people's minds, but I really think the cons really outweigh the pros in this respect. But I'll just leave it at that for now.
0: So are we seeing anything uh, out of Congress that might see this issue differently? We've got uh, language introduced recently focusing uh, on this issue. So any thoughts? Yeah, I'll
3: start with that one also. The, The Congress, last we heard, the last couple of years, the House Armed Services Committee has had language to establish a space guard. Because of all the other stuff going on over the last couple of years, the National Defense Authorization Act has been very late. And as such, when they get to conference, which is where both houses get together to figure out what to unify, to have a unified bill to send the president, they've had to cut a lot of stuff out just to get it through at the 11th hour. So that has always been one of those things that has been punted in lieu of another study, which, as I mentioned, none of the studies have ever made it to Congress because they've been held up at the White House level for various reasons. And so now the word is, as the House is marking up their Authorization Act, that... Um, Congressman Crow from Colorado is supposed to be putting the language back in again. We'll likely possibly see that on the 22nd of June when they have their full-up committee hearing. The Senate, Dianne Feinstein from California and Marco Rubio from Florida, have also put in similar language to match the House language as a standalone bill in the Senate. Both of those members are not on the Armed Services Committee, but they're in the appropriation side. And so there are ways that the appropriators could put things in that the authorizers don't. However, most likely we'll see another co-sponsor of that bill bring that to the Senate Armed Services Committee, which has been having all their markups in the last week or so in closed-door sessions. And so we won't hear what happens with that until probably the next week or two. But hopefully we'll see that as an amendment to the process. But it all depends on the leaders and the bill managers to see if this will ever uh, become part of the bill. And we'll have to just see what happens with, with the leaders, Adam Smith and Mike Rogers in the House Armed Services Committee, and, uh, and the other two, Inhofe and um, Jack Reed. On, on the Democrat side, both of them need to see this uh, as what it is, as a critical need for the country and not just something that the Guard wants to have because it's just for Guard's sake. That's not at all what the Guard is arguing for And it's not at all what the Air Force and the Space Force were arguing for over the last three years. This is vitally important to keep the capabilities and the capacity that we need, and especially with what's going on in space right now.
0: All right, gentlemen, we are running a little long on time as we do on the Aerospace Advantage. Does anybody have any saved rounds?
1: Hey, this is uh, Colonel Mike Bruno. Uh, Not really a saved round, but I just want to... uh... Thank you, and thanks for this opportunity to get our message out. I think it's critically important for uh, your listeners to understand that the uh, establishment of the Space National Guard um, is not only good for our country, especially in this, uh, this contested environment with both uh, China and Russia, uh, but it's also a cost savings to our taxpayers. So uh, $250,000 is the estimate to actually establish a Space National Guard. And if you follow what OMB policy right now is to move the missions out of the Space National Guard and into U.S. Space Force, it's going to cost the taxpayers somewhere estimated around $600 to $800 million uh, to transfer the missions, build new buildings, uh, train and equip new uh, guardians. Uh, And we're going to have about a seven to 10 year lag in our readiness uh, in protecting our great country. So, That's all I have at this time, but thank you very much.
0: Lieutenant Colonel McGuire.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, It's definitely my pleasure. You know, 30 years in the Florida National Guard, looking forward to the possibility of a Space National Guard. I think we need the capability uh, and it is definitely the most cost-effective way to maintain a space power advantage.
0: Well, it sounds like we still may have some work to do on this front, but uh, unfortunately that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Thank you, Mike, Scott, and Chris, for sharing your thoughts and being here with us today.
1: Hey,
2: Slick, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Slick. I appreciate the opportunity
0: as well.
3: Always a pleasure. Thanks very much. With that, I'd like to
0: extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to The Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at MitchellAerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.